0: Sometimes we sing uh, with near laughter over the Lord's goodness. Other times we sing through pain and grief. Maybe that's uh, you today. Lots transpiring this week. Some grieve uh, the loss of a brother to death. Some grieve relational difficulties uh, in your marriage with your children, uh, with your vocation. Some grieve the pain their beloved ones keep suffering. You cry out, why won't it lift? Some grieve the, the actions of particular leaders. We grieve how their words have defiled the gospel and lied to women. And we grieve how confused the church seems to be in the public square. And yet we're all here singing, singing, praying. Why? Because we know our God is worthy. And we know that He's our only hope. As I was prepared, I was amazed by the hope offered in the words of Acts 16. This this message is so fitting to what some of you are suffering right now. So would you go there with me in Acts chapter 16? I'll start reading in verse 25. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 925. Uh, And let me uh, pray for us. Father in heaven... We give you thanks that we are not those who sit in darkness. But we have seen the light of Christ given so freely. We have tasted of the Lord's goodness and we are amazed that we are saved wherever we were in all of our various stories and backgrounds, Your grace sought us out and plucked us from our depravity and brought us into the presence of the Most High where we have boldness and confidence. And we want to hear the voice of the Most High. We want to hear your word this morning to us. So would you help us to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches and that you would guard me from pride and error that we may dwell upon the truth And then work that truth into our lives these coming days. That people may see God's glory in Christ through us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're following Paul's second missionary journey. They're in Philippi. Christ saves Lydia. A seller of purple. Christ delivers a slave girl from a demon. The people don't like it. They want their money and the demon more than they want Christ. And so they beat Jesus' messengers and they put them in prison. And that's where we pick it up in verse 25. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, for we're all here. Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, no. Let, me, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I want to develop four truths from this passage and then tease them out a bit. Uh, They are truths that will help us endure and I pray will embolden us to give ourselves uh, more fully to the work of the Lord. Truth number one. The Lord is trustworthy and worthy of praise in our sufferings. He's trustworthy and worthy of praise in our sufferings. Verse 25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Remember what these men endured. The crowd dragged them into the streets, verse 19. They misrepresented them, verse 20. They stripped their clothes off and beat them with rods, verse 22. They imprisoned them, putting their feet in the stocks, verse 24. Shamed, half-naked, bruised, uncomfortable. And yet, we find them praying. They express their dependence on God through prayer. They trust Him to work in their suffering. We find them singing. They they find God worthy of their praise and adoration. Prison didn't interrupt their worship. Injustice didn't interrupt their songs. Pain didn't silence their prayers or their hymns. That's convicting on the one hand. Our prayers and songs to God often fluctuate with how comfortable we are. But these men pray and sing in the face of great suffering. Uh, It even becomes a remarkable testimony to the other prisoners around. They're listening in. On the other hand, their their prayers and songs and suffering give us great hope because they they point us here to the God who is trustworthy to, to sustain His people. They point us to the God who is strong to preserve your joy through suffering. They're a portrait of God's sustaining grace through suffering. They illustrate the life Paul describes in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. And he's writing that from prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known before everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now this doesn't mean we pretend pain isn't there. Uh, This isn't a mental escape from reality. The Bible is filled with the cries of suffering saints and constant reminders that God knows our frailty. God the Son even takes to Himself human flesh. Jesus knows humanity truly and sympathizes with us in our weakness. We're not pretending pain isn't real or like it's not there as Christians. We're seeing the suffering for what it is and then turning to the only Father who is able to satisfy and sustain and save Some of us need this reminder. God is worthy of our praise in suffering. He's worthy of thanksgiving in every circumstance. It's very tempting to feel entitled to a life of complaining and bitterness when you suffer. It's very easy to grow angry and resentful toward others, even towards God, when you suffer. But look here and remember this, through it all, nothing of God's goodness and nothing of God's holiness and nothing of God's worth changes when we suffer. He remains King and He remains worthy of our adoration. If there was ever a cry of suffering, it's that of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But David then goes on to say in that very same psalm, Yet you are holy. Yet you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And that psalm also becomes the cry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But God proved Himself holy by raising Jesus from the dead and making Him King. Paul and Silas know this. They have great resurrection hope. God will vindicate them together with Christ. And so in their suffering, they pray and they sing hymns to God. They know this light momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But there are others of us that need the other reminder that God is trustworthy in our suffering. That whatever suffering you encounter for righteousness sake, God will sustain you. You may look at this and say, I, I could never do that. I, I could never sing and pray after suffering so greatly. I can barely keep my handgun in my pocket. Somebody looks at me wrong. Wrong. I can never do what Paul and Silas did here. Well, you're right. Because you're not in prison. But if, for the sake of the gospel, you were imprisoned, rest assured there will be grace for that day. There will be grace to help you sing and pray in the face of great affliction. How do we know that? Because we see it here and we see it everywhere in the Bible. We've seen it in Stephen's life. We've seen it in Peter's life already. Christ will be with us. God is trustworthy to sustain our joy and to act on our behalf, whatever suffering we might endure for Christ's sake. Whatever you're suffering right now for Christ, seek Him in prayers and sing Him your praises. He's trustworthy and He's, and he's there for you. And He's worthy of your praise. Truth number two, the Lord's purpose to spread His word and save His people is unstoppable. Unstoppable. The Lord's purpose to spread His Word and save His people is unstoppable. It's a common theme in Acts. The kingdom of the risen Christ advances through His unstoppable Word. And that theme couldn't be clearer than in this jail scene. The irony is that the crowd of people locked them in prison as a way to stop the Gospel, as a way to minimize the Gospel's impact and the gospel starts saving people inside the prison. It starts impacting the other prisoners as they hear them singing and praying. In verse 25. And not only that, but God creates a series of events that lead to the jailer's conversion along with his whole household. Suddenly, it says, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So this this act here by the jailer squares with what we saw earlier in chapter 12, verse 19, where Herod orders the death penalty on the men who were supposed to be guarding Peter, but Peter escapes. The jailer thinks, the same is coming for me. So suicide is is his answer. But, verse 28 says, Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Do you see it? The word of the Lord is unstoppable. The world cannot control the spread of the gospel. The world cannot control the spread of the gospel because the world cannot control the risen Christ. He will send angels. He will shake the earth to get his gospel into the lives of the people he wants to save. The jailer asked the most important question anyone could ask. What must I do to be saved? And the apostles then point him to the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Saved from what, we might ask? Well, Acts chapter 2, verse 21, being saved has to do with escaping God's future judgments. In a quotation from from Joel's prophecy, being saved has to do with escaping God's future judgment. We've broken God's law and we deserve God's punishment. And that punishment is coming one day. But in love, God offers up His Son to save us from that Punishment. The punishment we deserved fell on Jesus instead. In Acts chapter two, verse forty, being saved has to do with being delivered from a crooked generation. Be saved from this crooked generation. He says The crooked generation opposes God, their moral framework is, is out of whack with God's law. We need rescue from our crookedness. And that takes place when we believe in Jesus truly. He he puts His Spirit in us and we become new. In In Acts chapter 13, being saved has to do with the forgiveness of sins and being rescued from death and then gaining the fullness of joy in God's presence. In Acts chapter 13 verse 47, being saved has to do with those sitting in the darkness of their depravity. They they can't see the way to go in in life, and and then they gain the light of Christ's revelation. Saved from wrath. Saved from the crooked world. Saved from sin and death. Saved from moral depravity. However limited the, the jailer's question is, He's getting more than he could ever dream of in the person of Jesus Christ. And that offer stands true for anybody in this room asking the same question What must I do to be saved? The answer is not, well, you've got to work for it, you've got to try harder, do better. Now the answer is very plain believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. All the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection will be applied to you by faith alone. Don't just ascribe to it mentally you hear believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust the person of Jesus Himself. Take Him at His word, such that He becomes everything to you, and you will be saved. The crowd thought they could stop the gospel by putting these men in prison, and instead the gospel proves unstoppable. It saves the jailer and his entire household. God's purpose prevails. It's like Paul says in Philippians 1, right? He, Paul is writing to the Philippians from prison again, and, and, and they're disheartened, they're discouraged over his imprisonment, and he encourages them this way. He says, hey, guys, I want you to know this, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known to the whole imperial guard guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, these guys back home, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, the gospel didn't stop when Paul got put in prison... It went out louder. Listen, the world will do everything it can to stop the gospel from spreading. Satan will do everything he can to stop the gospel from spreading. Circumstances will cause you doubt to, 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 to doubt whether the gospel will keep spreading. You felt doubt this week. You read the news headlines. You see your Facebook page littered, too much darkness, too much illness, too much baloney, too much sin in the church, too much persecution. What's going to happen to the gospel? I feel that. But what a sweet reminder we have here that nothing and nobody can stop the gospel from spreading. The Lord's purpose will prevail. His people will be saved. He will get the glory and our joy will be full for it all. He'll send the angels. He'll cause the earthquakes. He'll use the prison. He'll use the folly of men. He'll give all the grace it takes to spread His fame in every circumstance. And therefore, let's double down in the work of the Lord. That's what Paul concludes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, he says, I am suffering for the gospel, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why does Paul endure everything? Think public humiliation. Think beatings with rods. Think feet in the stocks. We can add, based on what he says elsewhere in his letters, we can add all the hardships and crud he has to deal with inside the church. Why does he endure everything? Because God's Word isn't bound. Chains don't contain the gospel. The sinfulness of man can't contain the gospel. And that's a summary of what happens in Acts chapter 16. Chains bind Paul and Silas, but the Word of God isn't bound. Corrupt and crooked people do awful things to them, but the Word of God is not bound. And therefore, they endure everything for the sake of the elect. And therefore, we too can endure everything for the sake of the elect. I love the story of of Joseph's son. As a pastor in communist Romania, some investigators arrested him for preaching. And after daily threats of death were leveled against Mr. Song, he responds like this Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. He's talking to the guys who've imprisoned him. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over this country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached, because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. What do you do with a man like that? If you kill him, Christ's name is magnified through his blood. If you don't kill him, Christ's name is magnified through his preaching. Apparently, Mr. Sun found out that another officer had said this, We know that Mr. Sun would love to be a martyr but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. But listen to how Mr. Saun even responded to that. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remember how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile. Because I wanted badly to live, I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they wouldn't kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. And now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. Beloved, the word of God is not bound. Therefore, we need to give our lives to spreading this word until all of God's elect obtain salvation and with it eternal glory. Truth number three the Lord's word powerfully transforms sinners of all kinds. The Lord's word powerfully transforms sinners of all kinds. Not only had the gospel spread to a Roman colony from Jerusalem, but within this colony we find the gospel transforming sinners of all kinds. Lydia is this competent businesswoman. Religious, too. And then there's the slave girl. She's both possessed by a demon and exploited by her owners. And now we have this jailer. By the way, talk about a culture with systemic injustice. They lock up two innocent men to protect their money and their customs. The jailer is part of this system and he participates in the injustice. He's the same guy that had their feet secured in the stocks. He's also somebody enslaved to the fear of man, right? He can't even stand the thought of facing his superiors, and so he attempts suicide. But observe how the gospel transforms this man. Verse 33, He took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. This hardened jailer who put their feet in the stocks now shows compassion by washing their wounds. He identifies himself publicly with Jesus through baptism. The fear of man is is gone. He, He shows hospitality. He takes Paul and Silas into his his home and he feeds them. Just like Lydia, this this jailer identifies with Jesus by taking care of Jesus' messengers. Whoever receives you receives me, Jesus said. He also becomes a man filled with joy. as, As elsewhere in Acts, the gospel produces joy in people's lives. He's joyful to finally know God. Beloved, do you believe the gospel can transform people like this? It transformed you. It transformed me. We heard some testimonies at the men's retreat this weekend. But if I went around the room and and we just took a few minutes... For each of you to share your background, where you came from, and what the Lord delivered you out of, I imagine it would sound a lot like the book of Acts does. Powerful transformation, coming to sinners of all kinds, and from all kinds of backgrounds, and they're transformed through the gospel. So let me encourage you not to put limitations on the kinds of people you choose to minister to. Don't form judgments about what kinds of people the gospel will transform and what kinds of people are beyond the gospel's power. Don't choose what kinds of people you want in this church and what kinds of people you don't. That's not just folly. That is antichrist. Christ is free to save whomever he pleases. The church in Philippi began with a savvy religious businesswoman, an oppressed slave girl, and an unjust pagan sailor. Jailer. Not sailor. Though he saves those too. They all have one thing in common. Christ and the deliverance He brings. He transforms. In what ways, perhaps, are you underestimating the gospel's power? In what ways are you underestimating the gospel's power by the people you choose not to share with, or the people you choose not to hang out with? Have you ever underestimated the Gospel's power in your neighborhood? Have you ever underestimated the Gospel's power in the life of a family member? Maybe an unbelieving husband? Have you ever underestimated the Gospel's power to transform lives in, in white settlement? If I if I had the mentality, if I could summarize in a few words the mentality of a lot of the people I've met in our community, it goes something like this: life sucks, but hey, there's Netflix and NASCAR. In those situations, as you're talking to these people, is the first thing: well, like this guy's without hope. I'm done. What about Benbrook and Chapel Creek and South Las Vegas Trail? Are there judgments for forming in our minds not to take the gospel to them? It's they're just beyond its power. Are we underestimating the gospel's ability to transform people from all kinds of backgrounds? Beloved, let's be faithful to speak the gospel with sinners of all kinds and not just the kinds that we prefer in our pride. Truth number four The Lord exposes the world's folly when his people patiently endure evil and pursue their enemies good in the gospel. He exposes the world's folly when his people patiently endure evil and pursue their enemies good in the gospel. Look at verse thirty five. When it was day, the magistrates sent the people, I mean, sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, take note of those things, uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly? No, no. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And with Roman citizenship come certain rights, one of those being a right to fair trial. No court had condemned them. Due process was never offered. They never deserved mistreatment. Moreover, their innocence stands out further in that when the opportunity to escape prison comes, they stay. They submit to the authorities. They patiently endure evil. So let me ask you a question. In all of this... that's going on here... who are the better Roman citizens? The crowd? Or Paul and Silas? That's a question Luke wants you to answer. That's a question... Luke wants the most excellent Theophilus to answer, whom he's writing to. He wants the influential people in high places of government to notice something unique about Christianity. Look back at verse 20. Paul and Silas were originally accused of disturbing the city. The crowd said they were advocating customs not lawful for them to accept as Romans. But in reality, the only discord being brought to their civilization was the discord caused by their own greediness. Right? The people's greed and idolatry not only was the, the cause of first stirring things up, it led them to punish innocent men. It's crazy. They jettison their own laws and customs out of fear of losing their own laws and customs. When in reality, it's just fear of losing their money. Do this all because a couple of business guys hold sway and want their money. By contrast, Paul and Silas deliver a woman from her oppression... They remain generally subject to the governing authorities. They suffer injustice, but they do so with great patience. They remain in jail without escaping when given the opportunity to escape. So they abide by the rules, so to speak. On top of that, they don't rush off taking advantage of the system. They stay for the jailer's sake. They stop him from suicide. They preach Christ to him. And then battered and bruised, they then serve the household, his whole household, with the gospel. They pursue their enemies good in the gospel. So who are the better citizens, Mr. Theophilus? It's Paul and Silas. And that's why Paul gets the magistrates to apologize and escort them out publicly. God had vindicated them And expose the folly of the crowd. The crowd needs to know that if there's anything breaking down civilization, it's their own sin and not the message of Christ. Moreover, the city needs to know that Christianity didn't oppose Roman citizenship, it actually improved it. The gospel leads people to rescue the oppressed. The gospel leads people to act with patience when wronged. It leads people to act with integrity even when given the opportunity to buck the system. It leads people to love their enemies and do them good. Beloved, you will be a better citizen for this country insofar as your first commitment and your primary identity is with the kingdom of Christ. Paul and Silas are Roman, citizens, are Roman citizens for sure, but that's not the citizenship they identify with most supremely. They even wait to disclose that information. They could have said something way back when they were being beaten. We're Romans! We're Romans! They don't do it. That's not their primary identity. Roman citizenship may be useful at times, and we'll see a few more times when Paul uses it. But it's not the primary identity. They identify first with Christ and His kingdom. They choose first to suffer for the sake of the gospel. People who know you at work, people who live next door to you, people who read your Facebook page, if, if, we, if we brought them in today and, and, and we asked them which would they say is your primary identity? Christ and Him crucified or capitalism? Not that those things are mutually exclusive, but what's primary? Would they say you're more Christian than Republican or more Republican? than Christian, or Democrat, or Libertarian. It's not that our Christian worldview won't shape our political convictions. It will. But where's your primary identity? Do they see the character that we see in these brothers here? Would would they say of you, wow, I've never seen anyone respond more patiently when wronged than that man right there. Would they say that when, when they read the comment thread on your Facebook page? Would they be able to say that about the way you, they see you living in, in public? When your boss maligns you and lies about you in front of others, somebody else throws you under the bus? Would well, they say, I've never seen anyone pursue their enemy's good so often than that woman right there. The way they gossiped about her, the way they were talking about her, and she just responded with mercy and service. If that's not what they'd say about us, then perhaps we've forgotten Christ in some ways. Because when we look at these men, that's That's who we're seeing in them is Christ and Him crucified. Christ patiently endured evil when wronged. Christ pursued his enemies good in the gospel. Christ embodied the good news for his enemies, which while we were still sinners while we were His enemies, Christ died for us. When we were hostile toward Him, He served us. This is a man who washes the feet of a Judas before being kissed by a Judas. He gladly submitted Himself to the will of His Father to save us. But even more, God raised Him from the dead to live in us. Christ is alive, brothers and sisters. And He lives inside of you and me through the Holy Spirit. And when He lives inside of you and me through the Holy Spirit, you know what our lives look like? They look like Christ and Him crucified. By His Spirit, we are being made into His image. Into His likeness, we're being renewed. When people look at our our lives, they should see Christ. They should experience attitudes that reflect Christ. They should see a people who gladly rescue the oppressed and patiently endure evil like these men here. They should see a people not shaped by violent revolt and vitriolic retaliation, but a people shaped by the cross. Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. When we actually give ourselves to this God who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, He will help us to live this way. God will expose the world's folly through our lives. The world will have to look at our lives and they will have to say, it's our own sin and idolatry destroying us. And Christ is the only answer. Can they say that of our lives? Well, let's give them every reason to believe that. Let's give them every reason to draw that conclusion by the way we patiently endure evil and pursue our enemy's good in the gospel why do we pray together